0: one man we should combine services more often this is a ton of people my gosh the energy's up it's great to be with you all and so late in the day I mean there's another plus of combining services we all get to sleep in my name is Jacob and I serve here as the youth pastor at sunrise I'll be filling in for Paul this morning as he's away on vacation with his family um, and before I start, let me just go ahead and put out a disclaimer. I know my hair looks weird. I'm aware of it. I'm not sure about it either. Um, this is really like the, kind of the, the lesser of two evils. Um, Cause if I keep it down, it just goes everywhere. Um, I hope that this is not my continuing reality. You can pray for me. Um, <laughs> uh, happy New Year's Eve. Um, I know most of you are going to be hanging out with family later on um, and friends and and eating good food and playing games, trying to stay up till midnight, Um, and so with the prospect of all the parties out there, I decided that today's sermon topic would be, it would be good for us to discuss the dangers of alcohol consumption, so that's what we're going to talk about for the next hour. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, We're not going to talk about that. No, rather, with with the new uh, design of the dining hall, the new purpose and intent of the dining hall that we're going to be implementing come the new year, um, I thought it would be fun to talk about Jesus and his attitude towards children. Because if you don't know, we're going to be taking the dining hall and turning it more into a kid's hub. So it's served us as our family fellowship center for a long time now. Um, originally was built to to house and, and to feed lots of people um, who were out on the streets, um, and so this new turn in our in our vision and in our um in our hearts is is to focus on the kids. We have a huge population of kids that God has been bringing to our church, and we want to make sure that we're being welcoming towards them. So that's going to be kind of the heart of the message today. And I've got a lot of. Uh, stuff to say this morning so so the good news is that because we only have one service this morning. I get to do double the preaching time <laughs> Right. No, I'm just kidding. I that, that's also a joke. I pray. I, I'm gonna try to keep it to just one um, Before we jump in I want to open with a question Raise your hand if when you were growing up you got to spend a significant amount of time with your grandparents Okay, a lot of hands just went up. All right Now, keep your hands raised if you enjoyed spending time with your grandparents. Yeah, that's the real question, isn't it? Um, When I was growing up, I always longed for the days that I get to spend with my grandparents. I can still remember laying on the floor of my grandpa's living room when I was about seven or eight years old. Um, And we were in this living room together, me and him. Um, And we were both in our own sleeping bags. I was sleeping over at his house, and he wanted to come out and join me so I wasn't just alone in the dark in the living room. Um, and he and my grandma Noni had this house in the hills of Lake Oswego that overlooked the heart of the city. Um, The house was built with one wall that was entirely made up of window panes and sliding glass doors, so you could look out over the city from way up on the hill, and it had this beautiful view. During the day, it was an awesome view, but at night, oh my gosh, at night, when the city lights were fired up and you could see the plethora of little glowing dots in the distance coming from traffic stops and businesses and car headlights and street lamps. Together, they all formed like this cloud of multicolored lightning bugs in the distance. It was beautiful. Um, I remember one night right before bed, um, I was looking over at all those lights, and as I laid back in my sleeping bag and I was staring at the ceiling, my grandpa spoke into the dark, silent room, and he asked me if I knew the Lord's Prayer. Now, being about seven or eight years old, I didn't have a clue what the Lord's Prayer was. Um, so that night, he taught me the Lord's Prayer. He had me repeat after him, phrase by phrase, sentence by sentence, and he quoted it from the clunky King James, so with all the arts and the thous and the thighs, but to this day, when I'm praying the Lord's Prayer, occasionally... <laughs> Occasionally, that memory will bubble up with it in my mind. Um, I remember another night being in that same living room, sleeping in the same sleeping bag, when I heard the keys of the piano come to life from the other room. My grandma Noni had sat down at the piano and began to play, and I had only a few times in my life heard my grandma play the piano. But Tonight, as I was listening to the rustle of my head against the carpet, My grandma's rarely heard but precisely tuned musical expertise filled the house, and it revealed itself. And she played, and she played, and she played, until I fell asleep. These grandparents, who we call Papa and Noni in my household, um, were my dad's parents. Unfortunately for my family, all except for one of my grandparents are still living. Um, Sadly, my grandma Noni passed away on my birthday, about three years ago. Um, One thing I can say, though, about my grandparents on both sides of my family is that they've always been incredibly warm towards children. It was like they saw in children something worth treasuring, something worth investing in. And when I think back on the amount of time and energy that my grandparents poured into me, I can now see that they were laying a foundation for my life. My grandparents never shied away from me. They never ignored me. And of course, they were my grandparents, so they weren't spending every day with me. But when I was with them, they always included me. They always welcomed me in. And I think in that posture, I sensed the very heart of Jesus. So that's what we're going to talk about today. How does Jesus see little children? And what does that teach us about the heart of God? So we're going to begin this adventure in the book of Mark. Um, in the middle of this last year, I was gripped by this passage in Mark. And the students and leaders uh, in the youth group could probably tell because I kept referencing it in different places over and over again for like a month. The passage that got kind of stuck in my teeth, so to speak, was Mark chapter 9 verse 33 through 37. So if you want to join me there in your, in your chair Bibles or on your phones, let's be honest, on your phones, um, go ahead. It's Mark chapter 9 verse 33 through 37. Now, This is one of those passages that on its face is going to be pretty familiar to most of us. And at first it looks simple, it looks small, but then if you keep mulling it over in your mind, if you keep sucking on it, the implications get bigger and bigger and bigger. It's kind of like an iceberg. Most of its substance is actually below the surface. And and as a quick side note... Um, I'm going to be starting a group of students uh, at 11 a.m. on every Sunday that will get together and talk about these kinds of passages, these passages that have so much depth to them when you really explore them, but on the surface can look simple. And I've found that conversations and dialogue around these passages can open up aspects of the passages that you might never see on your own. So um, if you're a student, 6th to 12th grade, and you want to join me come January 21st and onward, um, we're going to be gathering in, at 11 a.m. to do that. Um, and I'm thinking about maybe calling it like the iceberg group. It might not be, but it might be. So there's, there's my little drip for you. So let's read this passage together, and then I'll, I'll pick up, we'll pick up our magnifying glass and we'll go a little bit deeper. As it starts in verse 33. It says, And they came to Capernaum, And when he was in the house, he being Jesus, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. So they're all vying to be the greatest of all time. They're vying to be the goat. And Jesus speaks to the disciples, notice, very similarly to the way that God speaks to Adam after he's eaten the forbidden fruit. He asks an innocent question, tries to draw it out of the disciples. And whereas the, uh, Adam at least had the guts to answer God, the disciples do not. They can't. They can't answer. They, they, kept, they kept silent. So then Jesus goes into teacher mode. And in verse 35 we see, And he sat down, called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, I wonder why he's talking about this, if you didn't know what they were talking about on the road. Um, If anyone would be first, you know, hypothetically, he must be last of all and servant of all. So if you want to be the greatest of all time, or the goat, you've got to be the least of all time, or the lot. So you can use that as a fun mnemonic for you later. (laughs) Lot. Now, this teaching is kind of the launching off point for him it's a first step towards the path that he's going to take his disciples down and remember that Jesus is a teacher so like any good teacher he jumps for an object lesson it says in verse 36 and he took a child and put him in the midst of them and I I know what we're all wondering so I'm just going to go ahead and vocalize it where did he get this child (laughs) Where, where did this child come from Um, Did he just, like, borrow one from a stranger on the way? Like, I'm going to need him later. Just give me this kid for a second. I promise I'll probably return him. Um, We have to remember at the beginning of the passage, Mark sets the scene by saying that he was in the house. So he's probably staying with someone at their house, and this child was probably running around. So he, he probably didn't just steal a child is what I'm trying to say. I don't think he just kidnapped somebody. I mean, Jesus seemed prepared for the conversation, just maybe not that prepared. So Jesus whips out this kid. <laughs> and <laughs> Don't quote me on that. Uh, and, and Mark says, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. So you can picture him receiving this child and, and saying, if you do the same, if you receive, if you hold on to this child in my name, you receive me. And whoever receives me Receives not me, but him who sent me. So a couple notes on that last bit. Firstly, the word that Mark uses to refer to the the, the child in this story is uh, is the Greek word pedion. And pedion usually means something like little kid, So think like one to seven years old. We're not talking about a 13-year-old here. He might have been even younger than one, which it's a nice image. Imagine him just carrying around this 13-year-old, just like, receive the children. (laughs) You smell like Axe Body Spray. (laughs) He's not cradling a a 13-year-old here. Um, Secondly, Jesus says something here that sounds remarkably similar to another quote of his, and this other quote is actually one that is very near and dear to Sunrise Church's history. It's the quote that you would see on the dining hall wall as you walk in. The quote is from Matthew chapter 25, um, and it's the the context of Matthew 25 is Jesus is is talking about the final judgment, the end of history, where he'll separate the sheep uh, or the faithful followers from the goats, or um, those who would go into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Oof, not the greatest of all time goats. It's important you don't mix those up. And when, uh, what, what this eternal judgment pivots on, what it all is hinging on, is how these people, the sheep and the goats, had treated those whom Jesus called the least of these brothers and sisters of mine. The quote you'll have probably read on that wall goes, as, goes like this. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Now the sheep, the faithful followers, respond to Jesus and basically ask him when they did any of that stuff when they saw him in any of those positions. And Jesus responds, Truly I tell you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. So here Jesus looks to the poor, he looks to the hungry, to the thirsty, to the sick and the foreign, to the imprisoned, among his brothers and sisters, and says, That's where I am. I'm with them. I'm there among them. Whatever we do to them, it's as if we are doing it to Jesus. And we find out that it goes both ways. The next passage goes into detail, mirroring the exercise for us, saying that when we do not respond kindly, when we are not hospitable to the least of these brothers and sisters of Jesus, we will find that we have in reality rejected and ignored Jesus himself. So, that might haunt you the next time you walk by someone with a cardboard sign. Anyway, like I said, this passage sounds remarkably similar and shows a nearly identical relationship to that of Jesus in the little children. The way that we treat both little children and the least of these is how we are treating Jesus. As we welcome each of these groups, we are welcoming Jesus. So, where is Jesus? Jesus is there among the least of these. And where is Jesus? Jesus is there among the little children. Now, Jesus' heart towards children shouldn't shock us. After all, this is not the only thing that Jesus has to say about children. He actually has a lot to say about children. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 3-4, through Jesus says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like little children, you yourself will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So here we see that not only do we have to become, I'm sorry, do, do we have to welcome little children, not only do we have to welcome them, but unless we ourselves become like them, we will not be welcomed into the kingdom of heaven. Childlike people aren't the exception when it comes to the kingdom. They're the rule. And then again, we see in Luke chapter 18, verses 15 through 17, Luke writes, Now, they were bringing even infants to him, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. Same posture. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And in response to these sorts of passages, famous German theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and one of my favorites, um, once wrote in a a sermon um, that he wrote while he was in Barcelona. For children, I'm sorry, for, for children. For Jesus, the child is not merely a transitional stage on the way to adulthood, something to be overcome. Quite the contrary, he or she is something utterly unique before which the adult should have the utmost respect. For indeed, and this is crazy, God is closer to children than to adults. Whoa. And then he goes on and says, in this sense, Jesus becomes the discoverer of the child, right? He sees what everyone else doesn't see in them. He sees children and wants to belong to them. Who would block his path? God belongs to children. The good news belongs to children. And the joy in the kingdom of heaven belongs to to who? To children. Amen, amen. Yeah. Um, Jesus had plenty of time for these little kids who were being brought to him. He didn't busy himself with important adult business. He wasn't shooing them away so that he could analyze the current political landscape or submit his W-2 tax form or invest in some cryptocurrencies or hang out with some up and coming social influencers. As Bonhoeffer says, Jesus sees the children and wants to belong to them. So let me ask you a question. How many of you have had to set up a kid's table for a Christmas party, for Thanksgiving get-together, or some big family holiday? Raise your hand if you've set up, or have been in a family where you've had to set up a Christmas, I'm sorry, a a kid's table. Yeah, a good amount of you. Uh, mostly bigger families, I would suspect this is the thing. So in my family, we had nine cousins on one side and I think eight cousins on the other that would all come together on the holidays. And so we would always have to separate out um, and and have two separate dining situations. And and so we would always separate the kids from the adults. And I loved my cousins. I always felt most at home sitting with my cousins and my sisters. Um, But as I got older, oh, how I longed to see what it was like to sit at the adult table. (laughs) I was the oldest of my siblings and cousins, so I was this close to making the cut and hanging out with the cool older people, my funny and insightful aunts and uncles who I hadn't seen in a long time. But there was always one person, There's always one person at the table that wasn't a kid, and that was my grandma, Kemi. She would come and spend time with us there at the kids' table. And it always felt so comforting to know that there was at least one adult that didn't mind spending their time at the kids' table. And so this is going to be my takeaway for today. This is my big idea. If you want to write down one thing, this is it. I think Jesus is like my grandma Kemi. That would be a very funny takeaway if it was just that. No, um, no I think... <laughs> write that down on your fridge. Um, no, <laughs> I, think, I think Jesus, like my grandma Kemi, sits at the kids' table. Jesus sits at the kids' table. Now, is the conversation at the kids' table stimulating? I mean, do you consider poop jokes stimulating? Because you'll get a lot of those. Um, is the etiquette refined at the kids' table? The amount of times that people, my cousins, would put like pieces of food in my Martinelli's glass would indicate otherwise. Um, are you going to walk away enriched from being at the kids' table? Maybe, but more often you'll probably walk away with a stain on your shirt. Um, so who, who in their right mind would choose to sit at the kids' table? Well, I think maybe anybody that enjoys poop jokes first, right? Or maybe, if you're like my grandma, you can see that your life is best spent, poured out for those who don't deserve it, who, who can't repay you. And more purely than that, maybe you sense Jesus himself among the kids that you're sitting with. Now, like I said, as I got older, among, even just among the children, there were times I wanted to get up from the table myself and find some better conversation partners. But passages like these confront me and convict me. I had been looking for Jesus in the wrong crowd. Jesus doesn't live among the refined. He lives among the simple. Jesus doesn't reveal himself to the wise, but to little children. So so much that he says in, in Matthew chapter 11, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. And heck, we just celebrated last week the coming of Jesus into the world. How much more clear could Jesus have been in that the way that he wanted to unveil himself to our world was as a newborn? Talk about first impressions that's how we met him. And I think this is where we get into the essence of what Jesus sees in children. Maybe the most core element of what it means to be a child is to be someone who's no, who does not belong solely to themselves. Because they're so young and so innocent, so simple, kids have no choice but to lean on someone else for everything, and in doing so, to belong to someone else. They can't make decisions on their own. They can't provide for themselves. They don't understand how the world works yet. And that's okay. And isn't it clear that the best child is the one that, in light of that, leans on those that know better than them, that can protect them and guide them? When a kid is being stubborn or disobedient, we say that they aren't being a good kid. So so pretty much the definition of what a bad child is is a child that wants to do everything by themselves. We don't applaud the child that has a bright idea all by themselves to go walk out into the street, right? That's not the good kid. The independent kid is not the good kid. The best kid is the one that leans on their parents, that looks to their elders for guidance, for help. Um, Zooming in closer, I think the essence of childhood then has to be humility. And that's why Jesus emphasizes humility in Matthew 18, like we, like we saw earlier. Whoever humbles himself like this child, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I think what Jesus is looking for, that he finds in children and he can't find in other places, is that relationship of humble dependence. The heart that bases everything on the one that cares for them and that doesn't take themselves too seriously. Children often misunderstand. They mess things up. They do silly things. But a parent can forgive all of that for a kid who's soft-hearted, who's willing to learn and be humble. And I think this is exactly the relationship that we see with Jesus and the 12. The disciples misunderstand constantly. They do silly things all the time, and they often mess up and show themselves to have little faith but Jesus never abandons them. He never abandons them. Why? Because they were willing to keep walking in humble dependence on Jesus. They were like his kids. They were soft-hearted towards him. And even further than this, and this is, I, I hope I don't lose anyone here, but um, even further than this, I think that Jesus is looking for children to join him because Jesus himself is the eternal child. In John chapter 1, verse 1, we see, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So here we have the word being both God and somehow adjacent to God. And then it goes on in verse 14 to say, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So Jesus, right, this is the prologue to Jesus's life. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth if God's word is God, and God's word is also God's son, then God is both father and son. He is a father and a son. And even though I'd love to spend the next seven hours ranting about why the Trinity is so important, maybe we can do that next year for New Year's Eve instead of going to parties. You can all just hang out with me in my tiny apartment, and we can talk about the Trinity. Um, yeah. I'll, I'll, keep that. I'll keep that for later. Uh, I'll keep that for later. I'll keep it for Facebook, and I'll, I'll make it simple, keep it really simple. Jesus loves the little children because he sees himself in the children, and he sees in them what he wishes that we all had, what he wants for all of us. What children get that other people don't get is that it doesn't matter how cool or how educated or how capable, how pretty, how handsome, how rich, how successful you are, if in trying to achieve those things, you wander away from home in the process. Just ask the prodigal son. All those things lead to a life that's, that becomes increasingly about me, myself, and I, about proving myself over and against others. And in all of this, it's a life that becomes isolated and lonely. We become for ourselves in a world of people that are against us. As creatures, we were never meant to be all by ourselves, separate from the one who created us, fending for ourselves. So let me share with you an example of what it means to not be childlike. Um, this is from my own life. Uh, one time I went to Dick's Sporting Goods, and I know what you're thinking. Jacob, I've seen the way you look. You did not go to Dick's Sporting Goods. <laughs> I promise I did. And and maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, maybe he was going to to turn his life around, to get some creatine and some weights. Uh, No, um, I needed a new pair of shoelaces. (laughs) Uh, Now, I wasn't sure if Dick's Sporting Goods had shoelaces, but I knew that they had shoes, so I figured it was probably worth a try. As soon as I walk in, an employee asks me if I need anything, um, if I need help finding anything. And the answer to that question was yes. As I said before, I don't go to Dick's Sporting Goods very often. But being self-sufficient and wanting to prove myself and be an adult, do things by myself, I I refused the help. I said, no, I'm alright. I kept walking. And then I took a lap around the store, and there was no shoelaces. I couldn't find them. And then I took another lap around the store, no shoelaces, I couldn't find them. And on my second lap, I saw this, this employee again. And I thought to myself, man do I just humble myself and go back and say, man, I need help finding shoelaces? At least if they don't have them, he could tell me that, right? And I was like, no, I'm a man. I can figure this out for myself. So I took a third lap around Dick's Sporting Goods. I knew this store better than the employees at this point. And by the fourth lap around Dick's Sporting Goods, I was so frustrated and fed up, but so like prideful that I walked out of Dick's Sporting Goods, I walked into the parking lot, and on my phone, I ordered new shoelaces from Amazon. (laughs) In this moment, I was so attached to being able to figure it out for myself that I refused to ask for help. I refused to humble myself, and I ended up making things harder on myself. And I think in a way, we each can do this in our relationship with God. Maybe we have trouble coming to God in prayer because we feel silly asking for the things that we want or need. Or maybe we feel ashamed to ask for prayer in our church family because we don't want them to judge us. We, have, we don't want to pray in front of people because, you know, what if, they, what if they make fun of me? I think most of us feel this when thinking about confessing our sins to each other. That's a huge place where pride bubbles up. It's kind of a, you know, a big can of none of your beeswax, what I did wrong this week. Or maybe, I think I see this a lot, Maybe it's just an inner uh, that arrogance kind of bubbles up when we think about following the message that we're, that's preached um, or going and joining a small group, right? Um, or sticking with a small group or being mentored by somebody, right? These are all moments where our, our inner adult can be like, ah, I just want to do things by myself. I can figure it out on my own. I know better. I know what's best. Um... But Jesus shows us that life all by myself is not actually true life. Uh, Life lived in competition, in comparison, and in control over others and over my circumstances is not real life. In fact, the greatest among you, he says, shall become the servant of all. And because of that, the rat race of sitting at the adults table, so to speak, um, ultimately won't satisfy us. So like Bonhoeffer says, in the case of the child, he or she is something utterly unique before which the adult should have the utmost respect. Um, I was sitting in Starbucks with my friend Tony a couple weeks ago talking about all of this, and he said something brilliant that I want to share with you. He said, maybe God actually gave us children not just so that we could raise them up into functional adults, but more importantly, so that we could remember ourselves what it means to be like children. What if children are like little images, little glimpses into what it means to be truly human? And after thinking about it a bit, if, if Jesus is the type of human we all aspire to be in the church, which I think he is, and Jesus at the center of his personhood is the eternal child, the eternal son of the father, then maybe children really do show us something about what it means to be truly human. So now... I want to turn to what this might mean for us as a church family. Um, Firstly, growing down into childlikeness is a lifelong journey. Don't think that you can conquer that mountain in a day. It has so many different facets to it, and there's constant distractions away from it. There are many ways that we can begin to look like the disciples arguing over who is the greatest. Pride comes in a million shapes and sizes. But here's my encouragement to you. Uh, kind of an idea for how you might begin to foster this this childlikeness in your, in your life if you feel you need that. Um, it's a simple step that you can use to invest in that inner child. And this investment is, is not kind of a one-and-done thing. Like I said, this is going to take some patience and some longevity, but if you stick with it, it can be a long-term investment paying dividends far into the future of your walk with God. And like I said, it's really simple. Here in the church, it's almost guaranteed that there's someone who's further along in the journey than you are. They've walked with Jesus a few more miles than you have. Find someone in the church who's been around a bit longer than you and develop a friendship with them. It might take some time to find a good match for you. Um, it, it might t- take some time, but, but don't, don't get hung up on that either because that can become its own form of pride. Like, I need a very specific form of person that I can be under. Maybe you kind of just got to throw yourself at someone's feet and be willing. Um, But if you keep even just one relationship in your life where you're allowed to regularly become a child again, to be honest, to be vulnerable, to be trusting, to ask the dumb questions, to be honest about your feelings, like what you're really feeling that everyone else doesn't really know, it will become a training ground for you for how to become more childlike. And, and they won't always get things right. Mentors are not perfect, and that's okay. It's not actually all about that. The relationship is more about you learning to become like a child than them becoming some sort of perfect mentor. And I'll also say a, a kind of a brief word to the other side of that equation, because there's lots of people in this room who are mentors to people, and I can't thank you enough for the time that you're investing into your brothers and sisters. And most of you already know this, which is really good. But for those of you who maybe don't, take it from someone who's been mentored by many, many different people and has seen it done poorly and has seen it done well. Um, Being a mentor doesn't mean becoming the adult in the relationship. Um, I wanna quote a passage from scripture that i think will kind of illustrate the point this is matthew chapter 23 jesus is talking to the disciples and he says but you are not to be called rabbi for you have one teacher and you are all brothers so he levels the playing field you're all brothers you don't get to be teacher over one another and call no man your father on earth for you have one father who is in heaven so you're all brothers you don't get to father each other and neither be called instructors for you have one instructor and that is the Christ. So none of you get to instruct one another. So um, Just because someone is looking to you as a guide doesn't mean that you have the authority to boss them around, to flaunt your knowledge or your wisdom or to treat them like a subordinate. They're not your subordinate. You're a fellow child along with them, a playmate on the playground of discipleship. In fact, if anything, you, you mentors should be more childlike than those that you're leading because you're further along in the path of discipleship than they are you should be more childlike right um, one thing that will cause those who may want to walk alongside you to run away from you is if you belittle them um, so come alongside them merely as a friend nothing more especially with the up-and-coming generation the gen z and the millennials like we need someone who is gentle and humble with us because we can be a bit of an arrogant bunch ourselves. <laughs> and, and you know how hard it is to humble yourself as a human. We just talked about that. That's m- most of what this message is about, how hard it is to humble ourselves. So why would you want to make it any more difficult by trying to kind of flaunt authority over someone else? So just a caution from a young person, walk humbly and gently with young people. And the positive side of all that, the great side of not having to become the adult in the relationship, is that you don't have to get everything right. You're allowed to be a child alongside them, and that takes a lot of pressure off. Let Jesus be the adult. Okay, Um, so that's the first thing, is find a mentoring relationship. It is so important. Oh my gosh, find a mentoring relationship. I would not be half of who I am today without the mentors in my life. Um, Now secondly, if Jesus sits at the kids' table, then we should want to sit at the kids' table as well. And what that looks like for each person is going to be different and it's going to depend on your circumstances. Like if you have kids of your own, if you're a parent, that means that the way that you welcome your kids is the way that you welcome Jesus. So when they want to play with you or they want to talk with you, they want to play a game with you, they want to watch a show with you, whatever it is, how will you respond? Will you seek to be with them or will you seek to get away from them? Obviously, I'm not saying that you need to spend every waking second with your kids. No human relationship functions that way, and it would be unhealthy. But when you think about spending time with your kids, do you see them as a distraction, as a nuisance, as an obligation, or as the place that Jesus is calling to you from? Do you see Jesus in your kids? Maybe you're like me, and you don't have kids. Um, and, but I'd venture, I'd venture to bet there's no one in this room that lacks children somewhere in their life. Do your friends have kids that you could support and be a friend to? Do your coworkers have friends or have have kids that you can that you could meet and and get close to? Do you Uh, do you have nephews or nieces or grandkids? I know it probably sounds like grandparents' day with how much I'm talking about my grandparents in this message, but they've meant a lot to my development. My granddad used to go out every day during the summer and pick me up. He lived like 30 minutes away from my house. He, He went and drove, picked me up every day. We would go to Albertson's, we'd get coffee and donuts, and then we'd go back to his place, and he would do woodworking with me every day during the summer. He became one of the most influential people in my life just by that. So it's crazy how much you can invest and create fruit in the life of a young person just from the time that you spend with them. But who knows? Maybe you have absolutely no kids in your life. Zilch, nada. None. So what if you spent time as a volunteer in a classroom? Or in a Sunday school classroom? I first fell in love with the church when I started teaching the elementary class. And when I was in youth group, there was just this guy in the church that decided that I was worth spending the time with. And he contributed to so much of my spiritual growth, it's crazy. Now, I think it's important at this point to address some possible fears. Maybe you get nervous being around kids. Like, what if they don't like me or I can't connect with them? What if if I'm just awkward? What if they annoy me or I annoy them? And I'm super awkward as a person. If you really get to know me, I'm so awkward. Oh my gosh. I, I, just try to greet me outside the church one of these weekends. You'll, you'll see. I can't get the handshake right. Every time. I'm, I'm very nervous and flummoxed in social situations, and especially with generations that I don't feel like I connect with easily. And so starting working with kids was hard for me. Like, when I first got into it, I was like, it took me a little bit of adjustment. But as soon as I let go of trying to separate myself from the kids and allowed myself to just be goofy and silly and speak their language, in other words, when my inner child was let out to play with the rest of the kids, everything fell into place. So it is worthwhile. It can happen. You can get better at it. And I invite you to just go be a goofball. Find a game to play with them, learn a magic trick, show them a movie from your childhood. One of the things I most love about hanging out with kids is I feel like they give me a more relaxed approach to my life. It's like they teach me to trust that there's really someone out there that cares for me, that's, and it's going to be okay. <laughs> they make me feel like a kid again, running around. And some of you are like, Jacob, you are a child. It's like, yeah, but my body would say otherwise. I, I have the body of an old man. Um, but they make me feel like a kid again. I'm running around looking for candy, making stupid jokes, and most importantly, asking curious questions about the one who created them. As a church over the last few years, our kids' ministry and youth ministry have been through a lot, especially with the pandemic. Um, We've cycled through leaders over and over again. We've felt sort of islanded away from the church. There was kind of a a growing rift. Um, And and we struggled with hits to our volunteer staff, especially in the kids' ministry, and with parent involvement in the youth ministry. And we're still in the middle of building back. But as most of you know, come January, our church is gearing towards a much heavier investment in young sunrisers, starting with reorganizing the dining hall to be more kid-friendly. And with, family, uh, with uh, hiring a family ministries pastor, Pastor Daniel, who you've probably heard preach before. I love Pastor Daniel. Um, our volunteers have been incredibly generous, and they've created some real stability for our kids in the past few years. But as our church turns its eye towards the huge population of little kids that we've been entrusted with, what a great time for you to begin pouring into that crowd of kids yourself. So consider me the voice of one crying in the wilderness in hopes of preparing a path for you. As this year goes on, I anticipate that we're only going to grow more and more in our kid population. And it's going to be tempting to step aside and let someone else do that important work, try to cheer them on from the sidelines. But Jesus didn't cheer the kids on from the sidelines. Jesus welcomed them himself. So as you decide how to parent your kids, how to run your family, how to spend your time, who to invite to your home, how to invest your money, all those things. My heart's desperate to remind you that the kingdom belongs to the children and that Jesus is inviting you to become like a child, that the warmth that you show to children is the warmth that you show to Jesus. So this is the question I'll I'll leave us on for today. That question is this. If Jesus sits at the kids' table, are you going to join him? Will you join Jesus at the kids' table? Let's pray. Father, we, we come as those who have been adopted into your family through Jesus Christ's covenant, through the covenant affected in his blood. Because of his death and resurrection, we have been born into a new life with you where we get to be, where we get to have a true father. And for some of us who who maybe didn't grow up with parents or who felt estranged from our parents, that in and of itself is one of the biggest transformations to live as a child of the most high God. I pray, Father, that the same welcoming that you gave to us in Jesus, the same embrace, the same receiving, the same generosity would pour out of us as a congregation in the coming year and in the years to come, that we would always have a spot in this church for the children, that we would put our attention on the children, and that we wouldn't forget that we ourselves are children.